The following message is a paid advertisement. Nevada can't afford to stash away $3 billion in rainy day funds while schools are barely treading water. As teacher vacancies climb and classes are overcrowded, our schools and educators need the funding now. It's time for 20. Paid for by Nevada State Education Association. Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. Alex, you are not Jacob Solis. <laughs> Hello. Hi. You're not replacing Jacob, but you're going to be co-hosting a lot more. You are our podcasting intern. So welcome. This is your first episode and you are going to be co-hosting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of the team and to have you as my mentor, Joey. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll only get better with you on. So yeah, look forward to hearing Alex a lot more on the podcast as you dive into all kinds of really interesting stories. Yay, thank you. I'm excited to add and just really learn a lot. Well, hopefully the audience learns a lot too from you, Alex. And so we're going to jump right into it. Alex is going to be joining me for the rest of the episode and uh, you'll be hearing her a lot more on the pod. So let's get into it. Here we go. All righty. Well, Alex and I are here joined by the legislative team, Tabith Mueller, Jacob Solis, who's not co-hosting this episode. Sorry, Jacob. And Sean Galanka. Hello, you three. How's it going? You know, we're living off high chews right now. It's just so funny because it's true. I think I've eaten maybe 32 high chews in the last hour. <laughs> I only had one, but you guys probably need to eat something. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep this short then. So this is the last podcast before the session is over. What is kind of the the 20,000 foot view? What are you guys looking at? What are you watching before signy die happens next Monday? I think the 20,000 foot view is that we are all waiting to see what happens with the budget bills, right? Democrats have been rushing to pass all five of the budget bills to get them in front of the governor because the governor has threatened to veto those budget bills if Democratic lawmakers do not enact his priorities this legislative session. And I think the important thing to note here is that the governor has basically threatened to veto the budget unless the Democrats pass his five policy bills. And the Democrats have said they won't touch any policy bills until he signs the budget. So if anyone wanted to know where we are. Well, and, and I think that the other significant thing here is that it's not just those five bills that are on the line if the budget doesn't go through, right? Because Democrats are saying, look, we need to know what's happening with the money. We need to know what's happening with the funding before we can fund bigger things like a massive film tax credit expansion that's come through. You know, we've all been talking about the Oakland A's coming to Las Vegas. However, that won't happen if we don't have money to, say, offer film tax credits. And then, of course, a measure that would fund a new school for the Duck Valley Indian Reservation as well. There's a, a big reason why all of these threats matter. The Democrats hold a supermajority in the Assembly, but are one seat short of a supermajority in the Senate. And a two-thirds supermajority is needed to override any veto. So if the Democrats are going to try to override a veto of, of a budget bill or any other bill, they're going to need one Republican senator to join them in, in supporting that. So can you talk a little bit about what has been vetoed and what you do expect to go on to the governor? So at this point, when we're recording this Thursday, just three bills have been vetoed by the governor. That's out of maybe 50 or so things that have been sent to his desk. A lot of those he hasn't even touched yet because he still has time to sign or veto those bills. But three bills have been vetoed by the governor. And those are three high profile pieces of firearm legislation, basically Democrat-backed bills that 
would restrict access to guns and that they have kind of pitched as common sense gun safety legislation, while Republicans have opposed saying that they infringe on Second Amendment rights. And those bills would raise the age to purchase semi-automatic rifles and shotguns from 18 to 21, restrict the use of firearms or being able to carry a firearm at election sites, clean up the 2021 ban on ghost guns, and prohibit possession of firearms for anyone convicted of a hate crime. So once a bill lands on the governor's desk, how much time do we have before he needs to veto that or sign it into law? So it depends on when the bills reach the governor's desk. If the bills reach the governor's desk now during session, the governor has five days, not including the day it was transmitted to his desk and Sundays. (laughs) And then the governor has 10 days to veto or sign or just not sign and allow a bill to pass if it's post-session. So like let's say they all pass on like the last day of the legislative session, end up on his desk at that point, then he has 10 days to kind of figure out where, where things are at. So that's what's so important about these budget bills. And with the first two budget bills that were just passed, we're expecting the other three major budget bills to be passed out of the Senate. And so he'll have until Friday, June 2nd to act on those. And that gives Democrats a little bit of time, a few days before Sine die to try to override that veto or, you know, potentially be forced into a special session where lawmakers and the governor are going to have to work out some kind of deal to fund the government before the new fiscal year starts in July. Well, Sean, you said the magic words, special session. Everyone's been worried about it, I think, is maybe the right way to put it. Everyone's been chatting about it. So do we expect to see a special session? And what would it be on if we do see one? How dare you ask me if we expect one? It's dooming myself. But um, it's really tough to say right now. This could go a lot of directions. I think what's important is that the Democrats have basically already said that if there is a special session, they're not going to entertain policy bills. It will be budget focused. So right now what the governor has been saying is pass my policy bills or else. Democrats are saying it doesn't matter. We're not going to pass your policy bills even if you send us to a special session. Does this all matter? Does this create a constitutional crisis? There's a lot of open questions, I think, that like aren't going to be answered unless all of this really does force a special session. But for now, we have time for this to be sorted out during the regular session before June 5th. And I don't think that anyone really wants to go into a special session if we can avoid it just because that's more money from the state. You know, that would mean that we didn't get the budget passed, which is something that's vitally important for paying state workers, for education to receive funding. I mean, the whole nine yards, right? Because if we have, you know, the Oakland A's and a film tax and X, Y, Z and a million things that we're trying to wrap up, that's going to be difficult. And just to add to that, there are also a lot of politics at play here. And certainly over on the Senate side, there are some Republicans who in 2024 will be running in a pretty vulnerable position Thanks to redistricting now that, you know, they're kind of Democrat heavier districts that they're going to be running for reelection in. And so certainly this this whole back and forth about the budget, you know, Democrats are going to be attacking Republicans for not voting in support of the largest K-12 education funding budget in state history. And Republicans have explained their hangups with that. But, you know, that's going to be clipped. It's going to be put into political ads. And so that's also at stake here for for people who are casting their votes on these budget bills. I think obviously Democrats think that they can override these these vetoes, right? If they're rushing to get everything through to the governor's desk and he vetoes, 
and then they can bring it back. Maybe they're hoping that they can find one Republican in the Senate to join them. But we're, we're just going to have to wait and see. First of all, my manager is putting a lot of stress on stress on me to make some jokes here on my first day, my first podcast. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try it out. I don't think I can. That's okay. I don't think I can be funny under the gun. Oh, that's okay. All right. So you guys have shared a lot of information with us. Is there anything else that we can wrap up with as the session is coming to a close? I can't talk about the train bill if anyone wants, but no, I think, so Sean mentioned it earlier, but I think one really important part of all of this is the state, not only considering its largest budget ever, right, in terms of revenue, but its largest education budget ever, right? They're putting $2 billion towards K-12 spending. And right now, all of that is locked up in what have become extremely esoteric and difficult to understand debates over stuff called the stabilization account, rolling money like it's like no one would pay attention to this in an election and how this gets played out outside of the session is going to matter a lot in the, in the coming weeks and months almost as much as this money is going to matter to school districts who are going to get it i was just going to say that if one more person makes a special session joke i will lose it So now we're sitting down with the indie reporter, Daniel Rothberg, and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about the extreme heat in Nevada. So, Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Would you like to talk to us first about what's going on with the extreme heat bill that was not passed? Yeah. For about three years, I've been following efforts in Nevada to create labor rules mainly to protect workers from heat illness on the clock. So in days where there are extreme heat conditions, you know, really high temperatures, prolonged temperatures in Southern Nevada, especially, but also in Northern Nevada and in indoor environments that are not climate controlled, workers are more susceptible for heat illness and significant symptoms from that. And labor regulators in the state as in other states and on the federal level have been working to address this problem for the past three years. In Nevada, the state's OSHA Occupational Safety and Health Administration um, drafted some regulations to set a threshold for businesses to have a plan in place for workers to provide potable water, rest breaks, shade. Initially, if the temperature was at 80 degrees, that was later revised to 90 degrees that regulation failed to pass. And when that happened, labor activists started working through the legislative process to see if they can put some of these rules into statute. And that was the bill that I was following. Initially, it set the threshold at 95 degrees and uh, it was amended to 105 degrees. So it had a lot of pushback from business groups. A lot of business groups said that it would be onerous, that it was duplicative of efforts that they already take, that they do provide these things for their workers. And this just created a lot of uncertainty and, and regulatory burden. But you know, the bill sponsors pushed back saying, no, this is for the bad actors, for the people who don't do these things. Ultimately, given all the opposition from various different business groups and trade organizations, the bill was almost not going to get a hearing from at least my reporting in the assembly. It finally did get a last minute hearing and the bill was heard and it never got a vote and made it out of committee. So the bill died. So Daniel, what does 
What does this mean for the future of labor? And especially, you know, I think Las Vegas is where you think about this a lot. Are there going to be more efforts for regulation around extreme heat or is this kind of the end of it for now? I think there's going to be continued conversations around it. What I should mention, this is something that came up in testimony a lot, especially from the businesses that are opposing it, which is the federal government is looking into a federal extreme heat rule. This is a problem, not just in the West, but across the country, uh, plays out differently in different places. People are waiting anxiously for that rule to come out. And in the meantime, summers keep going by, temperatures keep increasing, and there are questions about what happens in the interim while we're waiting for this federal rule. All employers in the state of Nevada have a responsibility to provide a safe and healthy work environment for their employees under what is known as the general duty clause. So for now, the state is probably going to kind of look at heat through the lens of the general duty clause in lieu of any federal or state specific regulation. And how do labor activists feel about about this bill dying? I think for a lot of people, there was a lot of support testimony from labor unions, from workers who have been affected by extreme heat. And I think there's frustration that the, the bill didn't make it farther, especially with the significant amendments that were made. You know, having the threshold at 105 degrees, really, that's a really high temperature for the rule to, to kick in. I think, though, that there is still hope among labor activists that they will be able to come back, work with some of the opponents during the interim between this session and the next session and come up with some more solutions and generally just do more education and outreach and raise awareness about the issue. In some ways, this is kind of an emerging issue um, or an increasingly resonant issue as temperatures do warm up, especially in cities where because of the urban heat island effect, there isn't as much cooling down at night even. So there's just, you know, high temperatures all the time during some parts of the summer. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, Alex and I are outside of the legislative building on this lovely day. It might start raining on us. We'll find out. And we're joined by Gabby Bierenbaum, who is inside all the way across the country in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Gabby. How's it going? It's going good. Thank you for having me, both of you. Gabby, I've been told that we need to start by asking about the weather. So how are things over there in D.C.? Uh, yeah, we always have good weather convo. It's actually, and I always feel bad because it's actually really nice here. But it looks nice where you guys are too. But typically I'm like, oh, it's been great. And then the other Nevada team is like, oh, it's snowing and cold and whatever. But it's been really nice here. Very, very nice outdoor weather. Yeah, I'm a bit jealous because we literally just had snow, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, we're hoping that it doesn't rain on us when we try to record this. But yeah, so we're talking about the debt ceiling today. Gabby, there's been a lot of discussion about the debt ceiling. What's going on with it in D.C. right now? Yeah, so basically we're at a point where the congressional authority for the Treasury Department to pay the bills that it's incurred, both spending that goes out as well as payment on the debt that we have, um, the limit of what they can spend has been reached. That already happened. So the Treasury Department is implementing what's called extraordinary measures. It's happened before in the past where they sort of move money around, get a little creative with their accounting in order to meet their obligations. And what would be new in this scenario is if we reach what's called the X date, 
which the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, says is June 1st, at which point they will run out of those extraordinary measures they can implement. And at that point, the U.S. would essentially no longer be able to pay all of its bills. And that would be what's called a default. And that would be the first time that that's ever happened in U.S. history. And Gabby, can you explain to us why this would be the first time that this is happening? Yeah. So basically, a standoff over the debt limit is not necessarily new. This was so this is the third time we've had a prolonged standoff over it. All three times, it's been the same equation, Democratic president, Democratic Senate, and Republican House. So the debt limit, you know, every few years has to be raised. Um, some countries don't have a debt limit, so that's always an option that we could just get rid of that and the Treasury can just pay its bills without the congressional authority. But the last time they did this was in 2021. They did this successfully three times under the Trump administration. And so this really comes up when Republicans have controlled the House and basically want to use the threat of default to force some of their priorities, which in this case is mostly spending cuts, as well as stricter work requirements. Hi, this is Alex. I'm going to jump in here just to explain what a work requirement is. Work requirements generally mean that able-bodied adults who are of a working age and don't have dependents are required to work, train for a job, or do community service to receive public benefits. When it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, just a clean you know, we're raising the debt limit in exchange for nothing. The Republicans are saying, no, we want to use this opportunity to achieve, you know, some of our policy goals. And so they've yet to be able to reach a deal in the, you know, we're now down to seven days until the proposed X date. So we're we're definitely getting close. I think the last time this happened was in 2011 and they got within a day or two, I want to say, of defaulting. And the U.S.'s treasury bonds were sort of downgraded in terms of their creditworthiness at that time. So even if we get close, but don't go over, and obviously if we do go over, there's high potential for our credit to get downgraded. So what happens if we do default? Like, I mean, obviously the the credit limit gets downgraded, but is there anything else that's going to happen? I mean, everyone talks about there's going to be like a recession if this happens. So what, what are the results if it doesn't end up getting voted on? Yeah. So there's sort of two things that happen here. There's the macroeconomic effects, and I, I'll get to that second because it's a little more complicated. And there's the direct, you know, basically the government has... You know, there are payments that have to go out every two weeks and they have the authority to spend money, but they don't have the money, essentially, is what would be happening here. So they're going to have to make decisions about what payments are worth making and which, which ones are worth defaulting on. So it's likely that priority number one will be paying on the debt and the interest on the debt. So some of the things that might not go out could be someone's it could be Social Security checks. It could be payments to Medicare. It could be, this is less likely because the states could kind of step in and cover this. It could be payments to states that go towards state departments of transportation or towards school funding for Title I schools or what have you. It's federal employees pay. So in Nevada, that could be Bureau of Land Management employees. The military is all federal employees. So that's both active military, you know, at Nellis and Creech and veterans benefits. So, you know, direct assistance that people in the state depend on from the government could very well not come for whatever time that we're in default. And then the macroeconomic issues, yeah, so people speculate this could lead to some sort of recession. If our credit gets downgraded, that means the cost of borrowing from banks is going to get higher because, you know, a U.S. Treasury bond is just less secure as it has been. So when the costs of borrowing are higher, that makes it, you know, harder for businesses to finance any type of credit card payment, your mortgage, any type of debt in that sense is going to get more expensive. That could mean costs go up. That could mean layoffs. All of that, you know, people say with Nevada, what is it if the country sneezes, Nevada has a cold or 
country is a cold, Nevada has a fever, whatever it might be, because it's a you know tourism-based economy. And that's typically the first expense people are going to cut if budgets are tight. So it could be, you know, Nevada is still in some ways in recovery from the COVID recession. So that could be devastating. And even if they, you know, eventually do come to a deal, if we do go over that default, I mean, we've never done it. So no one exactly knows what would happen. But I, I don't think it's the kind of thing where you could just put the genie back in the bottle. And what is the Nevada delegation saying about all of this? Yeah. So, I mean, the Democrats are the five Democrats are pretty outraged about it. They, from the beginning, have been calling for just a clean debt limit increase. Definitely, if they reach a deal, it'll probably be something that more of the progressive members don't support. If it were to include work requirements, that's something that Stephen Horsford, as chair of the Black Caucus, has said, you know, that's not something he's interested in at all. So, you know, they've I think they've been very outraged by the situation and they see it as Republicans holding the full faith and credit of the United States hostage over their policy priorities and things that they say are wildly unpopular. Congressman Amadei, who's, you know, the only Republican in the delegation, his view is that government spending outpacing, you know, government revenue, running a deficit essentially as we do and having such a large debt as we do, his view is that's going to cause a financial crisis at some point. And he wants to take this opportunity to address it by putting in cuts, is what he would say. Do you think this is going to wrap up as normal? I think that's that's the biggest question in Washington. Yeah, if I if I had that answer, they'd be they'd be calling me up to ask. I I, I have to imagine we're going to get to a deal. I don't know that I probably no one will like it. And I don't imagine anyone comes out of the situation looking good just because we're getting so close. I think it's going to kind of come down to if they can reach a deal on those spending caps, as well as if the work requirements are hardline for Republicans. I have to imagine they pull out a deal. It's you know, that's very classic Washington to like pull out a deal on the 11th hour. But we've never had a speaker like this who's, I think, so beholden to the some of the most extreme forces in his party. So it'll be an interesting, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. All right, Gabby. Well, thank you so much for talking with me and Alex on Alex's first podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Tabitha Mueller, Jacob Solis, Sean Galanka, Daniel Rothberg, and Gabby Bierenbaum. Thanks for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, along with Alex Caro. We had additional help this week from Michelle Rendells. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Story Blocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And we'll talk to you next week. Sorry, I was busy watching Assembly Floor, and I think Senator Ira Hansen may currently be ranting on the Senate floor about China. The following message is a paid advertisement. Nevada can't afford to stash away $3 billion in rainy day funds while schools are barely treading water. As teacher vacancies climb and classes are overcrowded, our schools and educators need the funding now. It's time for 20. Paid for by Nevada State Education Association.